Hi everyone and thank you for joining us. I am Lydia and I have an exciting announcement to make. We are launching a new mini-series in our podcast to explore an issue that we care deeply about, that is environmental crime. We want to use this space to explore natural resource extraction, social unrest, indigenous rights, deforestation, the role of governments and corporations, activism and so much more. We are going to speak with environmental defenders, journalists, photographers, filmmakers and indigenous leaders. Our stories are rooted in different places, starting with Latin America and the Amazon, before we move on to different regions in the world. Especially as our climate deteriorates at alarming rates, we want to open up a space to learn from those at the front line protecting our planet and denouncing the actors and the actions that cause its degradation. This is Anya, and we are back, this time with the very first episode of our new environmental crime series. Brazil is a great place to start this series off, as it's home to a pretty vast set of expanding parallel crises, including deforestation, land grabbing, and indigenous displacement, illegal mining, and gold extraction. Of course, too, this is a country led by a man, Bolsonaro, who is gutting institutional capacity for environmental protection. Today, my colleagues Manju and Lydia are talking to Fabio Nascimento, a filmmaker and photographer from Brazil who has worked with organizations like National Geographic, The New York Times, Greenpeace, and Doctors Without Borders, in addition to his own projects. Recently, Fabio co-directed and shot for a new documentary called Mata, and that's M-A-T-A, which explores environmental crime in the Amazon. Here's our conversation. Hello, Fabio, and thank you for being here with us. Could you maybe tell us what motivated you to start covering Brazil's environmental issues using photography and using movie making? I think it all started by personal interests. And when I was still at university studying journalism, I had friends uh, doing their first documentary on uh, this uh, popular group in Brazil called the Landless Movement, which is a huge, huge movement that fights for uh, a fair usage of land. And so I was invited to participate in that. And then uh, as I was studying journalism, I just realized the documentary was a more free way to tell the stories that I was interested in. And then since then, it was just a connection of things being attracted by points of interest, the stories that I care about, and then connecting with people who were doing this type of work. So it wasn't a industry path that I've followed, uh, not at all actually, but connection between different topics that I think and, and I care about was just connection between people, environment and science. And since then I've been working on a range of stories covering uh, rainforests and indigenous people, the oceans, international waters, crimes, and it's just a connection between different topics that are usually misrepresented and stories that most people don't know but they should because it connects us all. One institutional uh, reason for this misrepresenting aspect is economic power and economic interests. And since uh, most of our uh, journalism is 
financed by uh, corporations and, and companies, uh, they have their own interests. And there is a reason why some of these stories, they are not being told or they're not being told worldwide or they're only told locally because it involves the biggest and the largest corporations or largest financial groups in, in the planet. And I think that there is a, a kind of interest of not letting people know what is behind certain issues for multiple reasons. Uh, if I talk about what's going on in Brazil right now, although we have historical environmental issues and, and human rights issues, uh, it's getting worse under the present uh, mandate, under Bolsonaro. And what what have been seen in Brazilian media outlets is that some issues that were not reported or were not reported enough uh, over the past decades, they're just getting so much worse and the problems are getting bigger and bigger and the number of people affected are getting larger and larger. So it kind of becomes uh, impossible to not report them. And I think it's one of these, these segments that some of the works that, I, that I've done in the past managed to get into some Brazilian outlets. So speaking of the works that you have done, could you introduce your movie Mata to our listeners? Mata is a documentary on how indigenous people and small-scale farmers fight for the right of their lands uh, in a region that is not only in this region, the country where Atlantic forest is being replaced by eucalyptus plantations. And eucalyptus plantations are a type of industry that started a few decades ago in Brazil. Norway used to be a really big uh, cellulose producer in the past. And for environmental reasons, they were moving this industry outside and they started planting in Brazil around 60s and 70s under the military dictatorship uh, with a very uh, tight connection with the government. Uh, these uh, companies and this industry are growing bigger and bigger and bigger. And during the pandemic was the most, uh, was the, like the largest growth of all industries in Brazil. And the number of actors planted with eucalyptus are really large. So at that time, Ingrid Fagnes, who is in the region and was working with me in this film, she, she co-directed the film with me. And she was at that time working in a kind of political education uh, interchange uh, in that region and was struck to see how those issues were really uh, complicated and was affecting a number of people and was hardly affecting the biome. And so she proposed me just to go there where we could maybe film some of these impacts and film the affected uh, populations. And we, the aim was just to make a short video for them to use as a political tool. And it, is, it was far from our intentions to make a documentary on that. I remember our conversations was, oh, let's make an eight minute video. So it's just like long enough for them to use uh, when they need to use like these indigenous populations or the small scale farmers. And at that time, talking like a technical thing, at that time it was just starting to fly drones as a camera operator upgrade. So we started seeing these plantations from above 
and we were like, this is really, really big. We were struck to see the scale of this impact. And for me as a Brazilian, I was also struck to see that it was never told. It's an issue that we never really talk about in, in a mainstream media. And we were visiting a number of, of communities and talking to these local people to understand what was going on, how it was in the past and what's been changing over the last decades. And it was dramatic. So we just told ourselves that we needed to better understand the issue we needed to better document what was going on in order to make something that sounded fair enough to tell this story and working on different areas like land use or the impact of these large uh, plants, cellulosic plants on water uh, contamination and water availability for these local communities. And then we went for more funds and we just kept filming and the, the entire process from the first shooting to the release of the film was five years. And in the beginning, we were trying to explain a lot of this story. And we had multiple characters from different regions. And we have a number of different researchers. It was a lot about numbers and it was a lot about the scale of it. But then we just thought that it would probably be better to make people feel it more than only understand it. And we kind of gradually shifted the film to a very different narrative form. Instead of having 20 characters, in the end, we have two central characters. And then we have two side characters. Because we wanted to make people relate to those characters. So, speaking of your work as a movie maker more broadly, would you say that it focuses more on providing a voice to the victims of environmental crime than to its perpetrators? I think that, first of all, there is something that I frequently think about uh, documentary filmmaking, which is giving voice to those who are not heard. We listen so often from the companies or from the corporations or from the, the economic players, but we have very little listening to those who are affected. So I think it's initially just one of the things that I think about documentary is giving voice to those who are not heard. I think that part of the journalistic aspect of the documentary, I think it's important to have both sides on those stories. When, when we released Mata, there was a Brazilian media outlet who made a piece about the documentary and an interview and everything. And during this documentary, we tried really hard to contact all the paper and cellulosis companies uh, involved in that region. And not only them, but also the associations that cover them and like some side companies that they work with. And they never agreed to give us any interview, which is a shame for the sake of the documentary. And but when this piece was published in a kind of large outlet, uh, the association behind these companies contacted them and asked for the right of a, a response of an answer as if the film was directly attacking them. And we tried to contact them, like for five years, we, did, we tried really hard to have them on the film and they never agreed. And, and then it was just this kind of uh, uh, narrative dispute going on. And they said, oh, if you're talking about this, we have to, you have to listen to our side. 
And then we're like, but we tried. And it's even mentioned on the film and we have it all documented. And, but, and then the media outlet denied, which I think is okay. Could you tell us which companies did you try to interview for Mata? All the companies behind. So there, there are main three companies, which is Veracell. And then there is this old company called Veracruz that then became bought by different ones. And there is investments from Studa Enzo, which is from Sweden. And so all, the, all those companies involved, which are really big. And there is one called Susano, which in the meantime bought other companies and they became the largest cellulose producer in the world. And, and we tried all of them. And we won it really hard because I think it's important for people to truly understand an issue is to hear to all sides. So the perpetrators, sometimes they do not agree on participate. Sometimes they are really difficult to reach. And uh, sometimes it's too dangerous to reach. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's part of documenting uh, illegalities or crimes in general. It's one of the, the failures of a lot of the journalists, and I'm not blaming journalists, especially as a journalist. It's just the fact that it's really, really hard. And it, it takes a lot and it takes risks. There is a lot of risk involved. Considering that many of Brazilian media outlets belong to uh, powerful economic and political actors that have investments in the energy or in the agribusiness sector, uh, I was curious to know if you face some kind of censorship uh, at times for covering environmental issues. There isn't any censorship in terms of a institutional censorship, but there are limitations in terms of uh, who is behind the, f the, the funding of certain corporations. And there is some back and forth and there is some dispute in this field. Uh, but I've never been uh, officially censored. I remember one of my very, very first works here in Brazil when I moved back to Brazil, which was 12 years ago, that uh, me and a team, we were hired to make a web documentary on some populations displacements, people who were from the northeast side of Brazil who had moved to the, the southeast, which is Sao Paulo and Rio, and they, they were then moving back to northeast. And, and then we went to document some of these stories. When we came back with, with this web documentary, what happened is that most of those people, they were going back to their homeland because there were more investments. That was under uh, President Lula mandate. So they were investing in many types of industries and, and, and people were just moving back because there were more investments in their homeland. So there was no reason to move to Sao Paulo and Rio anymore. But that kind of became a, a political uh, statement. We were hired by one of the biggest magazine in Brazil at that time, which was called Veja, V-A-J-A, which nowadays is not as big as, as it was, the web documentary. It was never published and it was never told uh, openly why it was not published. But it was quite clear that that magazine was pretty much the right-wing magazine, at least at that time. And they were seeing some reporting that was pointing towards left-wing government policies. Yeah. But uh, we were never really, I've never 
really faced that type of uh, institutional censorship. But I've, I've faced just that kind of like internet anger, which is okay, right? <laughs> it's not a big, big issue. I've never been really bombarded with that. So maybe we could pivot a bit. We also saw that you've been um, covering about the gold rush in the Amazon and gold mining. Um, and yeah, this is something I hadn't heard about before a few weeks ago. And just hoping that you could speak a bit more to the situation there. Who are the main actors? Is it foreign companies or is it local uh, groups or local companies? And what was the reportage that you did about this? I've been documenting some of the impacts of uh, gold extraction and other mine extractions in the country for a while different stories and a lot in the amazon if you think about the structure of this industry it has all the size that you asked about so you have large companies that will buy this final product and export this product selling most of it to the asian market but also uh, european and u.s markets but then it is provided by big local groups that are quite well organized in the sense of having the infrastructure to exploit the land. Pretty much they need pretty big structure, which costs a lot of money. And it's uh, most often provided by these large uh, local groups, so Brazilian groups. But then in the end of this, this story, you have just a huge number of local people who are looking for any ways of making money who are the ones being out there in these like river dredgers searching for this kind of tiny amounts of gold, but also like go in the forest and digging. And so there's all these different scales. You have the largest companies to these like individuals, it's huge number of the individuals being part of this production chain. So considering this risk that you have just mentioned, how did you manage to document so closely some of the environmental crimes uh, in the Amazons, for instance, gold extraction? I've been documenting a lot of the large-scale impacts of uh, gold extraction and mining extraction in the Amazon a lot from above. So doing overflights just to document those areas. And I did that a lot with different NGOs or media outlets like Greenpeace. One of the reasons why there is a lot of documentary from the air is because it's dangerous to get down there. We are in the middle of the forest. It's kind of impossible to have any type of law enforcement. But uh, I managed to get to know someone in, in the Amazon for many years. And this guy uh, used to work with gold mining and then he was working with illegal logging in the Amazon. And it just happened that we kind of created a trust relationship as I've been just meeting this guy in different trips uh, to the, the west side of the Amazon. And then somehow inspired by Ian Urbina's tireless work of reporting things from really close by, I wanted to test some of it, and which was pretty much uh, embedding with this guy, having kind of agreements of what we would document and and what we would show because we wanted to show an industry happening on the ground but not necessarily denounce this individual or this individual this is not uh, exactly what i was looking for and but it was also to protect me and then uh i just embedded myself uh i think that no media outlets would agree to go on such uh uh, endeavor 
And I called a friend who's a great journalist, Gustavo Falidos, who is behind Infamazonia, behind Matt Bions, and recently joined Pulitzer. I called him and said, hey, so I have this in bed with this guy, and I think that with him we can truly document gold extraction and illegal logging, but being there with those people. So I wanted him to have, like, to just follow me on this trip because he's a great writer, he's a great journalist, but also because I didn't want to go by myself. <laughs> like, if you are with someone, if at least you feel more protected, because the goal was, and what we did was to truly go to these gold dredgers in the river who work overnight, so they start as night falls and they work until the morning in this illegal activity, so they are frequently trying to survey if uh, there is some police law enforcement around. So it's, it's a pretty risky, intense uh, environment. And then we wanted, and we did, we went to protected areas where those guys were chopping down trees just to see how they operate, who are those people, what is behind and how they process these, these materials, these resources. And uh, we wanted to, sh to shed light into a certain layer of the story that is frequently untold. And that's, that's what we did. So speaking of illegal extractive activities, uh, it's a well-known fact that the unsigned public lands and indigenous territories in Brazil are currently the most affected by them. And I think it will be really valuable uh, for our listeners if you could share your experience on how does the process of land appropriation work in Brazil? I think that there are different scenarios in different resources extractions in different status of uh, land usage. Uh, so, and I think that industries will go after where resources are. The reason why there is a lot of protected areas being attacked is because there is a lack of resources outside. But then there is different, there are different aspects, different ways of doing it. One of the ways that happens a lot has been pretty well documented on the documentary Grazing the Amazon, which is faking documents. So there is a process that lands that are undocumented, people can just fake a no document and present it and say it's, a, it's mine and then they claim it. Wow. Other processes are pretty much invading and just making like slots of land, selling it. And once it's established, it's really hard to remove those people. The industry that has a kind of structured way of invading land is the cattle ranching industry and it it follows a path that connects different industries so in the beginning there is a forest so there's some valuable timber available so they first go find these most available types of trees they chop it down they process it then they sell it mostly to european markets but also to different parts of the world it's it's very profitable industry. After that, what they do is just like chopping down trees and setting fire, which is the cheapest way of what they call cleaning an area. Once it's set fire, they, you're going to seed uh, grass, cattle grass, and then they just bring the cattle in. So it just makes it harder to remove this activity and just bring forest back. Once it's gone, it's going to take a long time to recover. And if you think about gold, the industry is different because it's a matter of uh, if it's on rivers, it, they use dredgers 
they are they're kind of huge floating structures and they move all the time so they, they can sort of hide the activities uh, but also they go into the forest into uh, smaller streams once they spot an area that is a good potential area for gold they start digging it uh, so instead of just like taking uh, taking over the entire land it's just taking over that segment just like following the river and just digging 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 and <clears throat> it might sound small but when you see some of these places and you have a huge number of people if you think about the yanomami indigenous people we have right now twenty thousand people living and working in this place wow. illegally and extracting gold. It's like 20,000 people. It becomes a kind of a small city and it's just getting worse. And why do you think that illegal gold extraction uh, is getting worse recently? The fact that it's getting worse is a combination. There is a, from the government speech from Bolsonaro, it gives the population the, the sensation that there will be no enforcement. And once he is encouraging, directly encouraging gold cats, uh, and especially like gold extraction inside indigenous lands, even though the law hasn't changed, just gives the population the, the sensation that will, they will never be punished. If you think about what's going on in the Amazon, it's truly a result of the sense of impunity. And another reason for that is the economic crisis that it's getting worse and worse in the country. So you have more people having less opportunities in, in other, any type of work, job, in any ways of making money. So there's a lot of despair that leads those people to those legal activities. Yeah, I was actually listening to some interviews that have been done to Garimpeiros, which are, uh, for those that don't know it, are like the illegal, correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> the illegal miners that uh, now are active in this, uh, in the Yanomami indigenous land, for instance, and they really have no other, no other opportunities. Yeah, there is somehow this sense of the, the tragedy of commons. There are huge corporations who are buying these illegal gold and selling them to international markets. But on the ground, those who are getting dirty on mud and extracting these, uh, it, it's, it's really complicated and problematic to blame those. They are, they are part of a huge structure. They, they're just a, they're, they're part of this terrible machine but if you talk to those people you also see that they are not the ones making money making true money they're making some money for a living for sure but they're not the ones really making money and those who are providing the infrastructure for them those are the ones with like the kind of intermediate level they need machines that are very expensive uh, all the consumables from fuel to food and, and logistics are extremely expensive and they are provided by these big local groups. And, and then at the top of this chain, you have these companies that are simply buying legal products and turning them into legal products and selling to international markets. So I'm really curious what you think are potential solutions, if there are any. Is there maybe a role for the consumer or for um, yeah, for advocates along the supply chain, do you do you find any uh, potential yeah solutions for this? 
I do believe that there are solutions. I'm, <laughs> if, if I didn't, I wouldn't be doing what I do. Although sometimes, quite often, it's hard to believe that we are heading towards these solutions. But there are solutions. And I think that in one side, us as consumers, we need to do a better job. I use the word job because it takes some effort. It's not granted that we will understand what is behind the food we eat, the clothes we dress, or the transport we use. But we need to think about, and it's today, the amount of information available it's there. It's up to us to get there and to try to understand. And I, I don't mean to say that we are going to become all of us, become 100% conscious consumers uh, in a matter of days. It takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort. And sometimes it takes some decisions that are not necessarily the comfortable ones connected to making things more practical or making things easier for us as consumers. But behind this this idea of being practical and easy, there is a lot of impacts. It comes to plastic packaging, the raw materials behind our stuff in general. And it's really, really hard that we become totally sustainable in our consumption, but it's a kind of a horizon. At least we need to mitigate those impacts, just extend our time uh, living on this planet with a reasonable quality of water, air, and food. We need to extend that. We need to try our best to extend this comfortable planet structure. If a few decades ago, this debate, I think that one of the failures of this debate is to place the problem in the future. And we sort of became addicted to the idea that these problems will be there in the future for our grandchildren. But it is not. It's really close. And it's, we're, we are really close. I'm sorry if I just like went to a different direction and answered your question. We're really getting out of it. We're like, we're really getting, making it worse really fast. And it's a lot of concentrating resources and wealth. And I think that part of our solutions is sharing more. And once we start understanding, and it's, it's about big corporations, it's about billionaires, it's about the largest wealthy countries, and it's, it's about all of those big economic players. And if us as a society and as, as a species understand that sharing resources will make things better for everyone, it's a big shift. And I know it sounds very hippie as an argument, but in the end, like we cannot have six people having the same wealth of billions. It will never work. We are living on this planet that has limited resources. And it's, only the, the, it's the only one that we have so far. And I don't really believe that we're going to be able to colonize any other one anytime soon. So and once we have different solutions. This is like talking about the ground consumer solution or talking about the higher big player solutions. And in, in the between, there are lots of different solutions. What we consume and what we produce, it's all so connected. And for some reason, we just got hooked into this idea of being individuals disconnected from the whole. But, but it's just an idea that's been sold to us over the past decades or the past century that we can be this kind of isolated islands and living their own, our own existences. But it's all so, so connected all the time.
And I think that is one of these, these solutions. If you just understand how connected things are, uh, it helps a lot. But it takes, takes, uh, takes some effort. Which elements would facilitate your, your work of advocacy? Because in the end, it's, uh, it's advocacy, what you're doing. Good journalism takes money and takes time. So good reporting takes a lot of investment and it, it won't be it won't be cheap to make good reporting and it won't be cheap to uh, spread the word. It needs money. And if we think about where us as a society put money, uh, there are better ways of doing it. So if there, there are some amazing funding solutions for journalism, and I'm really happy that they exist. If you think about Pulitzer Center or a number of different groups, they, they make a great job on funding good journalism. But if we think about the number of stories that we need to tell, uh, we need us as a society to think that reporting which is understanding what is going on for us as, as a species is just fundamental for a society. It's just as fundamental as other things that we know that it's just like education. I mean, a part of having a well-educated society is having a well-informed society. And to have a well-informed society, we need journalism, we need reporting. Well, Fabio, thank you so much for sharing your perspective with us. It's true that this might become a bit of a depressing discussion at times, <laughs> but I really share your point on human interconnectedness. And as you said, we are all connected to each other and environment in a very intimate way. And maybe understanding this uh, is really the key to solve some of today's problems. We really would like to thank you for your time and we are looking forward to check your future works. It was really great to talk with you. Thanks a lot for having me. It's a true pleasure to talk about this subject. And and, and thank you for making such important series on the podcast. I think that's sharing the world, the word, and sharing it with the world. I think it's really, really important, and I'm really happy you guys are, are making it work. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We are really excited to be launching this series and we've got a lot of other interesting episodes in the works. So be sure to stay tuned via our Instagram, which is at utopia.worldwide. We'll see you next time.